What up, peeps? Guy Adami here. Monday, beautiful Monday, by the way, on the East Coast. April 4th, this is Market Call. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan. We're putting 30 minutes up. We're going to try to stay true to that in just a few minutes. The great Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting will be joining as his want on Mondays. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow and open exchange because they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Hi, Dan. What's up, guy? I mean, you see, you I'm all geeked up, up, man. I'm like fired up here in April. It's April. It's Major League Baseball month. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. I mean, you got opening opening day, what, on Thursday? That's I pretty exciting so. here. I believe so. Are you the sort of guy, I'm just going to kind of, I know this is going to sound very Boomer TV to you right now, but every, t- every April, as a like a market's pundit, I'm always thinking about April Come She Will, you know that song, and thinking about each month and how yeah. that kind of plays out. Is that is that in your wheelhouse a little bit or no? That's my favorite Grateful Dead song. So yes, it's not it's right Simon. You, you know it's Simon and Garfunkel. All right, let's talk about it because last week we mentioned that April comes. She will. You remember? Remember that stat that we read? Fifteen of the last sixteen years, the S and P five hundred has been higher in April. Guy, we are ripping in April right now. It's April 4th, as you said. You know, what gives here, man? Because, you know, we're going to talk about Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, his call in a little bit here. What is your take on this? I know that new month, new quarter, you see kind of funky action sometimes here. Is that what we're seeing? I think so. Hope Springs Eternal, number one. I think that's clearly part of it. But, you know, I think again, Dan, and it's important to say this, we look at things through the lens of the market, right? And I think through that lens, the market has realized or learned how to deal with whatever this Russia-Ukraine situation is or continues to be, number one. I think the market also says, all right, Fed's told us their game plan. World's not coming to an end. Maybe the equities are okay. And as you mentioned, the start of a new quarter, so you get inflows. I think all those things are coming in. But again, you know, we're going to talk about Jamie Dimon in a minute. There are obviously some concerns out there that the market's not taking into consideration. Yeah, I mean, I guess the markets or investors, most importantly, I guess, have gotten comfortable with the fact that the Fed is going to be raising rates as fast as they kind of hinted they would before they had their first rate hike last month for the first time in, what, three years or so. And I think what Jamie Dimon's doing is kind of interesting when you think about, you know, J.P. Morgan, the largest bank in the world. They're going to report earnings next week, I think, on the 13th. So they're going to get earnings season kind of kicked off here. Their stock is still down about 21% or so from its all-time high made late last year. And one of the things that you and I mentioned on a few occasions is that JP Morgan, even when the S&P made a new high the first week of this year before we sold off, JP Morgan had not. I think you have to go back to November. So you'd already seen some sort of relative underperformance. But what Diamond's saying in his quarterly letter, he's talking about all those issues that are being exacerbated, right? All those supply chain issues that, you know, they just didn't see coming here. And I guess the whole idea of higher wages and higher prices and higher shipping costs and then, you know, supply issues or whatever, that's the thing. You put that together with the very strong likelihood guy that Europe will be in a recession. And if our multinationals rely a whole heck of a lot, you know, on Europe and then emerging markets, how do we not slow down, I guess, is the question. That's exactly right. And you know, I think he's a really thoughtful person. You mentioned J.P. Morgan, the stock. I think valuations obviously came into the forefront late November into December. People started looking at valuations in earnest. And then they got around to the banks and said, wait a second, you know, J.P. Morgan's a great bank, but a 2.6 times tangible book, how great is it? And that's sort of come back down to some semblance of normalcy. So I think that's what happened to J.P. Morgan, the stock. 
in terms of these comments, he's he's just being he's he's looking at the landscape and he's saying what he thinks is going on. And everybody talks about the market hating uncertainty. What I'll tell you is there is never certainty ever. The only thing certain is, in fact, uncertainty. Sometimes it's more heightened than others. And I think that's what he's trying to lay out here in front of you. The market's been effectively lower left to upper right for the last 13 years. I understand what happened in March, April of 2020. I get it. But you understand what I'm saying. He said, you know what? Maybe things have changed a little bit. And maybe we should be looking at things with more of a critical eye. I don't think he's saying the world's coming to an end. I don't think he's calling for a stock market crash. But he's saying brace yourself for some volatility. And I agree with that. Now, I'll tell you this. The last two weeks have been anything but has vols gone from 36, 37 down to a 19 handle. And I think people say, you know what? Maybe everything's okay. They're all clear. I'm not so sanguine, and obviously neither is Jamie Dimon. Yeah, and I would just say this, is that if you're a CEO of a company the size of Jamie's and kind of touches so many different parts of the economy, the global economy, you have absolutely nothing to lose, actually, to be this way. If anything, you have something to gain. And I guess the other point I'd just say, with the S&P now don't, only down 4% of the year, the question you have to ask yourself is everything we know about interest rates, everything that we know that's going on right now from a geopolitical standpoint and the likelihood for a slowdown and what the Fed is basically going to do, they have to continue for you know this path here or they're going to lose all credibility i know you don't think they have a whole heck of a lot could all of this be encapsulated in a two-month 15 percent decline in the s p 500 and if april goes the way that a lot of bulls think it is we're going to be unchanged in the year that's yeah. the question and, and i'll just kick it over to you guys so mike wilson our friend is strategist over at morgan stanley he thinks what we had here was a technical bounce bear market rally okay and he thinks it's done so my question to you is he's saying double down on defensives your thoughts here. I agree with them, but I agree with them a while. But I mean, you know, I agree with them a week and a half ago and look at yeah. what the market's done. So obviously in our world, timing is really important. We don't have the luxury of saying, well, you know, five years from now you can, because that's somewhat disingenuous. I know a lot of people do do that. I'll say this. I'm with Mike Wilson. I've been with Mike Wilson. I'm surprised by the speed of, of this rally without question. But, you know, if you want to try to figure out what's going on again, market participants said, wait a second. What we lived through again, February, March, April of 2020, look at that decline in the market and look how quickly it came back. This sort of pales in comparison in their view. And like, you know, why shouldn't we be long equities? Because we know the outcome down the road, except that I think the landscape is much different now. And I think that's what Jamie Dimon was pointing out. I think that's what Mike Wilson is pointing out. And also say this, you know, Jamie Dimon used the word consternation, which is a great word that we probably don't use often enough. I'll try to integrate it from here on in. But I'll say this, the Fed has to move. And I think he's what he's saying is, I think you're going to be surprised by how fast they have to move and how they're going to be sort of steadfast in that raising of rates. Because you know what? It's not about the market now. It's about fighting this inflation by the way, they've wanted now for the last 10 years. Yeah, well, guys, so here's one for you because we know the CME Fed tracker tool is pricing in a nearly 70% chance of a 50 basis point hike at the May meeting in the early May. Does the stock market ripping like this give them cover to easily do 50 and then point to 50 in June and then they're well on their way? And I guess, the, so again, you know, you always say the dual mandate of the Fed is to keep the NASDAQ and the S&P 
S&P lifted, well, stable prices and full unemployment are the other one. We're nearly at full unemployment and we have anything but stable prices and maybe that's what they hit it really hard. So I guess the question to you is, if the S&P is here a little higher, by the time we get to that May meeting and they kind of do that 50 basis point hike and hint that they're going to be very aggressive earlier, they're going to hit it harder earlier. Is that the thing that causes the market to kind of turn lower? Yeah, but listen, absolutely could be. Or if you want to go one step further, it could be, you know, a mid-meeting rate hike yeah. seemingly out of nowhere. That's not off the table either. By the way, you know, you talk about emergency measures when things are going pear-shaped in the world. And they come in and they lower rates and they add liquidity. Yeah. I get it. I understand why they do that. But if you think about where inflation is, and the next print we're going to see is probably going to have a nine handle given where energy prices were during that period of time. Do you need an emergency measure? I would submit, yeah. I would have said that a couple of years ago. So I don't think a mid-meeting hike is out of the question either. I don't think the market, in my opinion, the stock market at least, is anticipating any of those things. All right. Well, here's the thing. You and I could use a little help of kind of charting this out here. We didn't even throw a single chart up there. You know why? Because we're not that good at it, guy. No, but you know who I'm is good, good at it? You're good at it. Carter? Well, yes. I will tell you this. I've learned everything that I know from this next guy, Carter Braxtonworth. You guys know him. You love him. <laughs> Worth charting. Carter. Uh, here's the next here. guy. Well, no, wait, wait, wait. To be very fair, in 2010 or 11, they brought Carter. Carter had already been on CNBC for years and years, and they brought him on Options Action. They thought me and Mike Co were getting just a little yeah, too Yeah, you guys funky. need a little assistance. Yeah, so so for, what, 10 years, I got to watch him do charts on, on, on Friday afternoons. It was amazing. Carter, how are you, bud? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, you guys, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, think about what you, you started with. I mean, bank earnings. I mean, that's that's so important. As those of us at a certain age, it used to be Alcoa. Certainly, Guy remembers that. It was a big company and let off the earnings. And now Alcoa doesn't matter. Big banks are the transmission mechanism in the economy, the lifeblood. And, you know, maybe their message is something's not quite right. I mean, are they all that expensive? No. I mean, U.S. Bancorp always runs at the top at more than two times tangible book. And then you get down to things like Citi at a 0.7. At the end of the day, and I think this is this is the maybe the most important, not because I'm saying it, but because it is the most. Sometimes you just can't figure it out. The market was looking as though it was going to break out to new highs in January. We know this. And then just six weeks later in late February, it looks as though it's going to plunge to yet new lows, put in a pretty important top or confirm the topping. And now here we are with the ricochet. Mike Wilson, a bear market rally. OK, maybe so. A new bull. Maybe so. But I think the key here is to find actual ideas, what you guys are always doing on the show, on the program. And the market, sometimes you leave it alone. I think the charts, I think we've got a couple, depict just that. The market is sort of, well, what's consternation? Let's go with indecipherable. Look at this. I, I drew those lines just to make a point. I annotated the high. That's pretty simple. And I annotated the low and I put in the midpoint. One could say what it didn't. It hasn't gotten back above its November high. That's true, but it is above those September August highs. It's kind of a pair of twos. You don't really press this. Now, if I if I were to take this back, look at the next two, and we're going to toggle here. That's arithmetic, and that's that's longer term. And of course, those are what you see there. Those are weekly bars. And now let's do log, and go back and forth. Arithmetic log. Arithmetic log. The point is kind of pair of twos, like really make a big bet long? Why? Make a big bet short? Why? Leave it alone. Maybe try to find some actionable things. 
So, Carl, let me ask you a question. I'm with you on the pair of twos, but as you know, sometimes on the flop, you know, you'll there'll be a two and then a seven and a two, and you wind up with a full house. I'll ask you this question through that lens. Do you get a full house if, in fact, you were to break the downside, that support line? Or I'll give you the upside as well. I mean, is that how you have to play it? You're looking for a breakout to play that full house or the downside break down? Right. And, and to some extent, some would say, so you're about to tell, guys ask you a question. You're going to say, if it goes up, you like it. If it goes down, you don't like it. Sometimes that's, that's about right. it. That's uh, exactly and then right. you could say, well, you could wait until it gets to the high, play it for the breakout, and then it fails. And then thanks a lot for that. Or it's back to the low. Again, this is a tough moment. I don't have the answer. I think there are clear moments, and this is not a clear moment. Carter, what do you make of, and we've talked a lot about this over the last few weeks on Market Call, the relative underperformance of the NASDAQ, especially how much it is down from its highs relative to the S&P 500. And on a day like today, I'm looking at stocks like Netflix that are up 5.5%, Facebook you know, up 4%. These are stocks that were literally cut in half from their highs, at least you know, back in November or so. And you're seeing just really squeeze easy action. I'm looking at some of these gaming stocks, Roblox and Unity Software up 10% and stuff like that. Is it some of the goofiness of kind of quarter end stuff? People are selling them, get them off so they don't have to show that they own them and then buying them back here. I know we're going to talk about what's going on with Twitter and some of the social names, but I'm just saying really relative NASDAQ versus the S&P that you just charted here. Does the NASDAQ have more room to run even if the S&P were to kind of bang around sideways a little bit? Well, in the sense that the NASDAQ is so dominated by not the names that maybe are most interesting here, yeah. some of the names you mentioned, but the big ones. And yeah. they're the ones that are most broadly owned, the way U.S. Steel was once upon a time or General Motors. It's the things that populate the biggest ETFs. You get a lot of autocorrelation that drives it. At the end of the day, we are. let's take today's tape. I mean, just look at today. And one day doesn't mean a damn thing, but it's all defensive. It's simply tech. It's telecommunications, which, of course, 40% Netflix Google, Facebook, and its consumer, which is Amazon. Everything else is down. It's, yeah. it's a defensive kind of thing because if and as we are slowing, and there is a case to be made for that, right, that there is some, not necessarily a contraction, but the, the rate of increase in GDP is, is abating, that defensive stocks or areas are, are more desirable. Carter, there's a reason why we do this on Mondays is because you, you do extraordinary work over the weekend. You've been doing it for years and you come up with things like this. Now we're going to take a look at the industrials versus the materials, which, you know, not a lot of people talk about these things. You do because you look at the charts over the weekend and you come up with something. This is a fascinating look and I have some thoughts on it, but sort of walk us through what you're seeing here. Yeah, well, well, thanks for that. And I do. It's called Money in Motion, put out a piece for the last 25 years at least. And it's for institutions, but it's really for anyone. That's the main thing. And a lot of big hedge funds, as everyone knows, are long short, mostly are. And then some are beta neutral, dollar neutral, and everything has to be a pair. So a lot of the work I do is looking at ratios and, and pairs charts. And I want to look at, and this was this morning's piece, it's the relationship between all industrials and all materials. So the S&P 500 materials sector, it's relative performance to industrials. Let's let's bang through some charts. Here is it's just a ratio. So you're just you're dividing one by the other. That's how you calculate a relative strength line or a ratio chart. And so this is neither the XLI or the XLB, it's the relationship of the two or it's the material sector's relative performance to the industrial. So materials, of course, is, is Freeport and Dow. It's got chemicals and steels and metals. Industrial's got things like Caterpillar and 3M and Ingersoll Rand. 
Now, I've got no lines on there, right? No, but let's put some lines on. First chart. Pretty straightforward. It's stuck in a range. The, the title of the piece was a two-year standoff, meaning they've been in a dead heat. Materials aren't outperforming industrials. Industrials aren't outperforming materials. But guess what's happening? It's breaking out. Next chart. Another way to draw the lines. Pretty straightforward. Look at this a little longer term. So we pull back and we go again. Next chart. That's the same drawing. Now, you can draw it that way. And let's keep going. Here's another way to draw it. Next chart. Do we break above the downtrend? Yes. Next chart. Is it a cup and handle? Next chart. Is it a head and shoulders bottom? It doesn't matter what you call it. It's what a reversal looks like. It takes time and price, time and price. And at some point, the word developmental comes to mind. This is very developmental in its nature. It has made a clear turn, meaning materials have lagged industrials for a long time. And right now, they have acted well and the two-year standoff is in an end. I think you simply get long XLB, that's the spider's ETF for materials, and get short, if you are in the pairs trade, XLI. And I want to throw one more chart because I think we have one with moving averages. And this is interesting as well because I think, again, this shows upper left, lower right, and then this moving averages. Hopefully we have it. I thought we did. But starting to round off and trade to the yeah. upside. If we don't have it, my yeah. mistake, there no, we go. So this is perfect. an important one to look at as well. Exactly. And then let's toggle the last one, the head and shoulders, and then back to the moving average. The point is, it's the same chart, right? And the moving average tells us that you have a change in trend. That's the point of a moving average, an automated trend line. Rather than drawing that downtrend, which we did, and showing that it broke above, the turning and scalloping out and bottoming of the moving average tells us that we have a transition. Yeah, and before we get to Twitter, because obviously that's a big story today, Newmont Mining is something you mentioned last week. We've been talking about it for a while. Newmont Mining, by the way, for you playing our home game, gold wasn't making a new all-time high last week. Newmont Mining was, and there are a variety of different reasons for that, but that's a name Again, Carter's been talking about seemingly breaking out to the upside, and that sort of backs up exactly these charts that we're looking at. Yeah, Newmont, big name. And, and in fact, and here's the, the thing about it, a lot of material stocks are small, but then gold specifically, if one were simply trying to have exposure, but one was an S&P 500 benchmark manager, there is only one gold stock in the S&P, and Newmont is it. Well, there you go. All right. This is what we call in the business a hard pivot here because that was pretty interesting. But I want to move to another sector you were just talking about. We were talking about how you view tech as defensive. Some of these recurring models deem to be very defensive and they, with their moats and their monopolies and all their cash and recurring revenue models should be somewhat defensive. But some of these names, you know, like the social media names, a little different, right? They're much more subject to, you know, consumer spending or ad spending. And, you know, we saw this for the first time, you know, Guy, I I remember in the throes of the pandemic, people thought, well, online ad models would be just absolutely nailed given all the uncertainty. And then because of all the usage and people locked at home, they were actually going ballistic. But then the deceleration in the back half of 2020 into last year was the thing that really kind of hit the multiples. And I just think it's really interesting to see Twitter today is up 30%. All right, guys, you got to get in here and we got to talk about this. The richest man in the world, which is Elon Musk, he's the CEO, founder of SpaceX, obviously, and also, oh, Tesla. He took a 73 million share position. It's passive. He owns 9.2% of Twitter. That is why the stock is up here. And it's just interesting. We are in a world right now where some of these guys, and, and a lot of people call them our American oligarchs, can really do 
do whatever they want and make happen whatever they want because most people would think, all right, well, this is kind of concerning. You know, be like, why does he want to make, waste time doing this? Well, one reason is he's making money doing it. I'm just curious, guy, your take on this announcement. I got no problems with it whatsoever, to be very frank. He's been very vocal about how he thinks that Twitter has, you know, censored individuals or groups or, or different kind of ideologies and he's entitled to do whatever the hell he wants. It just seems like a bit of a sideshow, just much like the, the Dogecoin little thing a couple years ago. Yeah, well, it's hard. And I know you're not saying this, but what I'll say is $3 billion is it's hard to make call that a sideshow. And that's yeah. basically the amount of money here. And it's pretty remarkable. And if you look at the stock today, Twitter specifically, as we sit here at 120, it's already traded 190 million shares. It typically trades about 19 million. So already today, it's traded already today, 10 times normal volume. It's be interesting. I've thought Twitter's cheap for a long time. I think that's part of his bet as well. I think he just thinks it's too valuable a platform to be trading at the valuation that it's trading at. So I think that's part of the calculus. In terms of Sideshow, maybe. you know, Does he want to sort of put his stamp on it in some way, shape, or form? Maybe. And then there's a lot of people that think, or there's some people that think, maybe he's trying to do this to take the eyes away from maybe what's going on at Tesla in terms of deliveries and those types of things. It may be just an amalgamation of all. I'll say this about Twitter. This is, to me, a pretty classic breakout on huge volume. I think it has further room to the upside, Dan. Yeah, I mean, it's not like this is a heavily shorted name. And I know that since they had Jack Dorsey, you know, resign in November, I mean, initially the stock rallied off of that. And it's kind of interesting that that day guy, do you remember it got above 50 bucks? People were really excited that Jack was going to leave. He was obviously the CEO also of Square and the stock sold off. I think it went from like 51 to as low as like 31 late last month. Carter, you got to get in here. You know, obviously, you know, you probably don't have much to say or care much about the situation, what Elon Musk does with his money here. But this sort of gap, like Guy said, it's a bit of a runaway. No one saw it coming, right? So catch people's off guard. Is it kind of hard to chart a situation like this because this is not fundamental? So, right. Well, let's do a couple of things. First of all, if you think about it in its totality, and this would exceed the duration of this chart, going back, of course, its IPO price in November of 2013, today's move simply returns it to the high of that day, meaning basically Twitter's been done. Now, not too shabby to have Elon Musk there moving things along. The question is this, and maybe making inferences here, was it I've simply done the chart today. So again, as you say, uh, unseen by anyone, was it a little minor head and shoulders bottom and had it broken above that? Down? Sure. Did I put it on any buy list? No. But I think what's interesting, and I don't know if we can show others, there are a lot of stocks that are set up like this. Now, they're not all going to get sponsorship by Elon Musk or, or Kyle Ayrkan or anybody else. But the point is, when you have uniform setups in a certain area of the market, it has to be respected. And Pinterest is one of those names, and we're looking at it here. And if you want to start playing that, I'm not saying it's a game. If you want to start using that transitive theory, I guess, I mean, you look at Twitter, you see what it's done. Pinterest is not a dissimilar stock. In a lot of ways, there are a lot of similarities there. The chart is extraordinarily similar. It's identical. here we are at a level where maybe we see this breakout in, in Pinterest. Right. So the common circumstance for something that's bottoming, of course, is that had preceding weakness, right? And that's the case with Pinterest, with Twitter. And you'll see whether it's Chinese stocks or certain ETFs, biotech, for instance. But it's a long and protracted downtrend that 
barring you go to zero, oh, Enron, WorldCom, or Eastman Kodak, at some point you transition. And usually it's right to let some price get missed, you know, not be the first guy in because calling bottoms are difficult. In fact, why don't we rip through these very quickly and then go back to the beginning? So just like Rorschach, just look at them quickly. This is biotech. Look at the next one. This is Shopify. Look at the next one. Just forget the names. That's the point of this. Look at Spotify. Look at the next one. This is Snap. Look at the next one. This is Salesforce.com. Look at the next one. I mean, you that's Pinterest. You would think that, that somehow something went... The point is, yes, it's tempting to think, oh, I'm going to study Pinterest versus Etsy, Etsy versus Now versus Snow versus CrowdStrike versus Workday. Sometimes just go with what's happening. And they do all have a common characteristic, shocking preceding strength. These are great winners. Two, that all collapse, 40, 50, 60, 80% declines in some cases. And then what? Starting to put in bottoms. But Carter, let's let's go back for a second here. Yep. And you just said something really important. Forget the names, right? The, the formations all look the same. Yes. We would not be doing this today if we didn't have that piece of news in Twitter, right? Because we had that massive break. And so when you think back to the opening of our conversation and what Mike Wilson was saying, and I'm not saying that he's got it right here, okay? But let's just say he is right this time and said that was a bear market rally. We're going to go back and retest the weakness in some of these these stocks, right? Like, and I know that they look like they're trying to bottom would be the very thing why they would be continued to be sold. And I wonder if this headline for people who are really trying to pick some bottoms and some stuff might end up being a really bad thing because no one's coming in and taking a stake like that in Pinterest, unless there's a bunch of activists out there who we don't know about. Do you know what I'm saying? And so given all the uncertainty, that's a couple of things. I mean, you're saying that we wouldn't look at these barring the news for Twitter, but what's interesting is take just today away. All of those charts had broken above their downtrends yep. three and five and eight test sessions ago and all have that minor head and shoulders bottom. Yep. So the question is, independent of the fact that Twitter has made us or one or all of us say, hey, let's look at others. Yep. Point is that they all have generally started to bottom and base. But I think the most important thing is maybe what you kind of ended with is these stocks can be used as a control mechanism for the market in many yep. ways, which is to say, so if energy goes up more, energy's been going up for two years at this point. Steel stocks have been strong. So is an Alcoa or even, frankly, Newmont. But if something that's really bombed out, that starts to base, actually continues higher, and others were doing it earlier, Square, for instance, right, as an example, if these were to continue, there's a real message for the market, just as if these all start to falter, there's a message. But these are more important right now than most areas of the market. So, Guy, what do you, what do you like here? Because one, one of the things I would just say is we started this conversation because of some sort of event, right? And, you know, there was a, remember Toma Bravo, they paid 13 and a half times sales for Anaplan. It was like a, a $13 billion deal. This was just a couple of weeks ago. Might we see some strategic M&A? We have PE in there. We might have activists. I mean, like, so my point is, I was just kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit. You know, I think on one of our calls, I know I said it on Fast Money a few weeks ago. I was like, Twitter and Snap should merge because they're never going to get the sort of scale to compete with a Facebook or a Google or something like that. So, I mean, there's a whole host of things that could happen in some of these bombed out names that we're trading at 30, 40 times sales that are much cheaper now. I'm just curious, Guy, any of these on your radar? Yeah, I think all of them should be. And Pinterest is the one that sticks out like a sore thumb to me. But they all are the same. To Carter's point, you don't really need to know what the company is. You just need to look at these symbols. And you know, you go back and I actually mention this because I think it, it really is important here in terms of what's going on. 
The movie Jaws, you remember, everybody's on the beach. Nobody wants to go in the water. Everybody's terrified. One person goes in the water. Everybody goes in the water. And I'm mentioning that because I think a lot of people have been terrified to get into a lot of these names. Elon Musk gets in feet first. And now I think you're going to start to see other people act in kind. So listen, I'll say this. You don't necessarily have to own these stocks. But if you've been short them, I think you absolutely have to cover. And quickly, we have a couple of questions, Dan and Carter. One of them from William. Are you cautious on REITs, AGs, and utilities? I'll say this about utilities in the form of XLU. Lower left, upper right, new all-time high. With rising interest rates, in my opinion, I think he's got to start to pull the ripcord in utilities. I think AG continues to go higher, Dan. And one more question for you. And Dan, this is specifically for you because you do this very well. I'm up 35% in XLE since the start of the year. It's only 2.5% of this portfolio. I don't think that necessarily matters. Sell, hold, or buy more. I'll say this. It's either buy or sell because if you hold something, you've effectively made the decision to buy it. Each day you hold something, you're buying it at that day's closing price. I would say you absolutely have to take some money off the table, whether it's a quarter, third, half. What do you say, Dan? Yeah, so I would just, I'm going to let Carter speak to the chart because if you look at a five-year, it's at a level and let him see what he would say if he thinks it's going to break out or not. I would just say if you have a 35% gain in that short period of time, it might be make sense to take some off the table and maybe you kind of define your risk from here on out and buy a call or a call spread, risking some of the profit that you made, but locking some in. Carter, what's your take on the chart of the XLE? Yeah, reducing exposure to an area that's been very good for quite some time and it's quite steep yep makes sense you have to be disciplined i say this all the time dan and i'll say it to the people watching trade the stocks or the etf or the commodity don't let them trade you think about that chew on that i'm sure that wasn't on your bingo card i'll say this in closing i was in tennessee over the weekend and everybody loves dan nathan but more than a handful of people came up to me and said I adore Carter Worth, and it's so great you have him on for Market Call. I agree. That's I agree. 30 minutes, bang. I told you, suckers, it was going to be 30 minutes, and it was. Thanks to our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.